learning how to understand mindfulness as a way to be your own detective. So it's now about curiosity and sort of learning how to really investigate both your internal and external environment. Welcome to Unlocking College Life, real talk about all things college. The best part of this podcast is that your voice is part of the show. Other students care what you have to say. So through your questions, your feedback, and your real talk, we all grow together. Let's dive in with your hosts, Joy and Alona. Hi, welcome back to Unlocking College Life. We are joined today by a student who has a really interesting story who can really speak to some of the other themes we've talked about on the show, including imposter syndrome and failure. So I'm going to let her introduce herself briefly and then we'll go from there. Hey everyone, my name is Sarah Renberg. I'm a senior at the University of Michigan, majoring in biopsychology, cognition, and neuroscience. And I guess people find me interesting because I'm a fifth year. I'm 23, which is a little bit older for college kids, and that's because in my junior year of high school, I uh, sustained a brain injury and had to deal with a bunch of complications from that. Yeah, so Sarah and I know each other, and I know a little bit more of some of the challenges that she's gone through. And she actually has her own podcast, so a little plug right there. And part of the reason she created that was to give back, because she went through some really unique experiences that impacted her mental health and ability to just function, and where she had to sort of reframe how to even sort of like do life. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, but some of your purpose now is helping to translate some of what you've learned and have other people learn from it as well. I'm not sure I would go so far as to say it's my purpose, but I'm certainly trying to leverage what happened in a positive light because I think that's a big part of moving on and, and being able to navigate it. But yeah, so being able to sort of figure out going from being an athlete and being a you know, an A student, all of a sudden like having to figure out walking correctly and learning how to read well again and all those things throws you for a loop when you're 16 years old and trying to assert your independence. So maybe talk a little bit about when you were having to kind of relearn basic functions. And I think you've talked with, you've mentioned this before that you can view those as like, oh my gosh, not a failure, but like a backstepping. And then how did you move forward, literally, but also in terms of how you approached life, where things were way more complicated than they had been previously? I think now, seven years later, that I can look back with sort of a different perspective and how I approach life now. But at the time, I would say that I definitely did view certain things as failures. So for instance, like a balance and walking evaluation to get rid of like the neon hold belt you wear in physical therapy to make sure you don't like topple over. Like that fail because it's like an objective measure. You either pass or fail. And I feel like the situation was going to kind of suck regardless. And so I sort of took it upon myself to try and make the most of things. So I think any clinician that worked with me and my parents and siblings and friends and stuff would like attest to the fact that I brought a great deal of sarcasm and fun to most of the appointments and things and trying to celebrate small victories when you're got getting cleared to like ride a recumbent bike and for the first time or do something like that you could be like I played elite level ice hockey so it's like a long way off from skating and things again but you could be really 
sad about that or you could be really ecstatic about like the opportunity and the progress and so I find myself paying attention to little differences and slow progressions and being sort of paying attention to the growth then also being able to sort of shift your perspective and what really is failure and so I had had my heart set on playing college hockey and that did not happen and so to me that was a massive failure that I had to sort of stomach and took some time to get over but my sister didn't play college hockey like she wasn't really trying but so like is that really a failure you know sort of being able to put in perspective like what actually is failure in addition to how you learn from it and I think that in rehab like you push to failure like that's the whole point so I think that I just started to view failure as an asset which I hadn't necessarily thought about outside of the context of a gym. So I have a follow-up for that. Do you think that your athletic background sort of prepared you perhaps a little bit because to play hockey, right, that takes a lot of grit that you keep showing up. Sometimes it's all kinds of hours of the day because ice is not always available. So it's a lot of repetition. And I'm curious, in addition to the things that you already mentioned, right, like celebrating small steps, looking or reframing failure, I don't know if we can really talk about an accident or injury as a failure, really. Are there other things that sort of helped you through the rough spots, right? Because even when you keep showing up, I'm sure there are rough, rough patches that you maybe wanted to throw the towel in. And somehow you're here, I think, seven years later. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that it shifted from having to focus. So like when I came to college, like I got a lot better, came to college, and I then put a lot of pressure on myself to sort of do everything right in the healing process and take care of myself. And I started to view like any setback as sort of like a failure to do my part in getting better and continuing along that trajectory. And so that brought along its challenges. But my athletic background certainly was an asset because all of rehabilitation is deliberate practice. And that's what I spent my entire life doing and having sort of the habits in place and the tools that I know that how to structure a schedule, how to seek out help from a coach-like figure, how to understand my body. Like, I think that sort of was underappreciated thing that I acquired from athletics. So it was certainly integral. Do you have a routine these days that habits or routines that maybe have stuck with you that are still part of your life today? Oh, yeah. Habits are one of my favorite things to talk about. I'm a big fan of Atomic Habits by James Clear, which sort of is this notion that small habits can make huge changes over time, economics, compound interest, and that by creating systems that allow these habits to be easy, only going to prove your ability to do them. Yeah, I have habits that range from just like every morning I do mobility and stuff. I have certain rehab exercises I know that you know will make me feel better. I do a journal every day. I'm a big fan of meditation, eating right, going to bed. So the reason you can record this because I sleep basically from 9.30 to 6 or 5.30. And so having that sort of schedule and knowing what I'm prioritizing. And I'm not saying that what I do is necessarily right or good for everyone, but I think that my habits very much reflect my values. And I think that all students should think about it. It's like your habits are largely what you do in a day. So like, do they reflect 
what you care about. And it can be as simple as the fact that like if you have a designated work time, you put your phone on do not disturb and you throw it across the room. Prioritizing sleep because you care about your health. Like so I I think that's something that I've thought a lot about because I'm not a healthy young person. So I can't get by on not enough sleep or not good nutrition. Like when I don't sleep well, you can tell. And it's usually comical, but it starts to kick my butt in school and things. Because I had some lasting autonomic nervous system dysfunction that like that can go awry pretty drastically if I don't take care of myself. So like it's forced for me, but it's taught me a lot about managing well-being and how that serves as a necessary mechanism of success instead of like an either or trade-off. Sarah, I think what you're saying is really important about how our habits really reflect what's important to us in the moment and how do we align them with our values. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about like how mindfulness plays into that, because I think what you were also sort of suggesting is that sometimes our habits don't always reflect our values. And how do you kind of tune in to when you need to make a shift. You mentioned like throwing your phone across the room, which I thought was great. But like, yeah, you're nodding. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. So I've had an interesting relationship with mindfulness. So I do want to give a little bit of background because I was told to meditate pretty early on in my recovery. I was told to meditate actually as like a preteen, teenager, stressed out and just a hyperactive kid. And I was very mean to my mom about it. And then, so I was very rejecting of this notion. And then I came across the Love Your Brain Foundation, which is a fantastic organization that does mindfulness education, among other things, for people affected by brain injury. I now am a facilitator for their online mindfulness education class. And so I learned to really appreciate meditation as this way to sort of calm my mind and be able to exist in a classroom to have really bad, really bad sensory processing. And so it was just a way to like sort of deal with the overstimulation. And since then it's transitioned. And as I've gotten deeper sort of into my own practice and understanding it and also learning through being trained as like a wellness coach about how it applies to others and just in my conversations, being and talking to Joy, learning how to understand mindfulness as a way to be your own detective. So it's now about curiosity and sort of learning how to really investigate both your internal and external environment. And so being mindful of your actions and how they make you feel. So like the reason that I care about my nutrition and what I'm putting into my body is because it has a direct effect of how I'm feeling, my energy levels, my ability to perform in an academic context, whether or not I need the bathroom all the time. Like there's just like, but being aware of that warrants a specific amount of attention. And it's the same thing with like exercise too, or being, so having the awareness to be able to remove yourself from the current action and be like, what is this actually doing for me? What does it say about me? To me, that's all mindful practice, whether or not you call it that. Well, and I appreciate you throwing in actually the bathroom example and even eating, right? Because we certainly encounter folks who, and I think from what you said, I think you relate to this, is that some folks in meditation are overwhelmed by actually racing thoughts or overwhelmed by the sensory input, right? And so for some folks, this has to start with very, very small steps and more of the mindfulness in your daily life, such as mindful eating, right? Rather than sitting in a prolonged meditation, which is really going to be just a nightmare for someone like that. So I am curious if you can say even maybe a little bit more, if there is more, to how you bridge that, because it sounds like it wasn't always sort of pleasant or easy for you. 
Sure. So I am a big fan of the body scan. Just like a five minute recorded body scan. I like being told what to do. It's way easier than just sitting and breathing to me, especially at first when you're not practiced. Because the other thing is like meditation, like anything requires practice. It's like a muscle. And so you have to train it. And I think people sort of walk in thinking that just because it's thought it'll be easy. And it's so not. In fact, if it is easy, you're probably doing it wrong. And so that would be the first thing. And then what I actually had done is, so I, after my injury, I worked with a cognitive behavioral therapist to help with some of the return to learn things and sort of, again, navigating you know, the onslaught of stimulation that was a classroom. And she had me basically suck on a peppermint and take deep breaths whenever I was feeling really overwhelmed. So she'd have me stare at a piece of paper because it would be blank and I had a lot of visual issues. And then she'd like just focus on the taste of the peppermint in your mouth and take deep breaths. And like, that's how I started. So it was like focusing on something. And so being able to focus on something instead of the absence of something to me was a lot easier to wrap my head around. And then also what helped is that it was really a function of desperation at that point. Like I was desperately trying to get back to school and sort of survive. So a lot of these things, again, like I'm forced to do them because otherwise, like like I would have just never gotten better. And to me, that really wasn't an option. So for better or worse, that mentality, but I'm not sure I'd recommend smashing your head through a wall or anything. And I think that's what I was wondering as well is, you were forced to have to confront this on a different level. And you're also still able to like apply it when you're not forced, I think, too, because you worked the muscle. And I think that's what you're saying is that anyone can really do that, whether they're forced or not. And I actually even wonder sometimes in terms of habits, I don't know if you can talk about going back to the values when we know it might align with our own values, but it might not always align with like, what everyone else is doing, right? Where it's in conflict sometimes with like, oh, but all the other students are doing this or all my other friends are doing, why? Like, how do you then really center it on you versus sort of getting caught up in the story of everybody else? So I'll say two parts. I'm gonna save that for a minute from now, but to address the first part, thankfully I was able to like rehab through a lot of the issues. So I'm largely normal in like a classroom setting to a degree. I'll put normal around quotes, what really is normal. But I still use like, so for instance, before an exam, like an orgo exam, I take accommodation. So like people are lined out outside the testing accommodation center at Michigan pre-pandemic. And like everyone's just sort of anxiously fidgeting and I'm a little bit anxious. And like, so I usually will bring something to like put in my mouth, take a deep breath. Like I use some of those strategies still, even though it's not a function of an overstimulation thing. It's just a matter of like calming myself because a ton of educational psych literature that shows taking a test while calm is way easier than taking a test while anxious. That's just one example of where like that is useful to me. And again, yeah, building up the muscle. Like I think mindfulness applies mostly in my life now as a way to sort of manage the typical stresses of student life. But also I think it's really useful in navigating relationships and being able to like calm the trigger that might come from like a discussion with other people. So the benefits abound. And then to your latter question, which was more about sort of 
how to navigate differences. I will address it head on that I'm quite different than the average college student. I can't drink, so I've never had alcohol really here on this campus. Maybe I've had maybe two total drinks at the University of Michigan. I don't really party too much because it's one, if you've ever been in a frat party sober, it's just not as fun. I go to bed early because I need the sleep and I'm just not really, some people say I'm as good as drunk after about 1030 because I get a little, like, I'm not as good cognitively, but that's important to me. I don't have the same energy. I still deal with some ongoing health stuff. And so like, I've just had to like sort of pick and choose where I put my time and energy. I take, so I'm in the honors program here at Michigan and compared to other honors students, I take a reduced course load, though I'm still a full-time student. I dropped out of school for a semester. Like I could go on in the ways that I'm not super normal. And so it has taken me a while, and this has been a transition throughout college to really own that as part of my narrative. And that there sometimes my differences actually are an asset and not a detriment and to own it because when the transition really came, I worked one summer as an like orientation leader, a peer advisor for the honors program. And my first summer, I wasn't always truthful. So I would take my friends' stories and tell them as if they were mine because I was embarrassed that I either didn't have any or like my version of a Saturday night was like watching hockey and then going to sleep maybe or chilling out with my friends. So I'm like the master of attending the pregame, having fun and then being like, I'm going to bed, good night. And which is perfectly acceptable by the way. And I've never felt like I've missed out. I feel fully satisfied in my relationships here, but I felt like it wasn't enough when talking to all these incoming freshmen excited to get what college was. And then I did the same thing the next summer. It was a COVID summer and it was on Zoom and throughout the transition and just sort of, I really just sort of owned it. And I was perfectly honest. I felt like people need to see that it was some college kids go to 6am CrossFit, like, and that's okay. And that means they have to be in bed by like 930 if they're going to pull that off. But I think it's about having self-confidence. I think that's what it comes back to. Well, and I really, really appreciate you being so candid about both taking a semester off. I'm assuming that was for medical reasons or other reasons, not a study abroad, if that would be a semester off. But also even about the stories that you made up. Like, this is real. I think that there are a lot of our listeners who can really relate to that and how desperate we can get. Really, really appreciate you being transparent about that because you're not the only one. And just really quickly, what I also heard in that, I was always thinking of it in the opposite way, which is when students are sort of forcing a narrative that isn't theirs. A lot of times I think that's where a lot of tension comes up for them. And what I heard you say is once I started owning it, I actually, it almost seemed like it felt good and better because that was you instead of trying to force this other thing, which then creates sort of added tensions and stressors. Well, and personally, I would have a hard time keeping up with my stories if they were not my own. You're not wrong. But the thing about orientation is they weren't there for more than a day. But <laughs> so I got away with some of it. And thank you for saying that. I think it kind of came with looking back and being like, I actually do really cool things and I'm happy with it. And it came back to like being, if I'm happy with it, why do I care what anyone else thinks? And sort of being able to own that. And I have always had this thing where, you know, I do have a backstory. So like even just freshman year when I got here, I've gotten increasingly my history has gotten increasingly less obvious over the years that I've been in college just because I've gotten a lot healthier. 
And so what I chose to tell people at first and the degree of acceptance. So I think that was also a huge game changer. And I think people come to college, one, scared about making friends, and two, maybe they have something about themselves that they're scared to share, or they might you know, be nervous about. But my friends were, like, it took me aback because I don't think my high school friends were as supportive. Like, there's only, like, very tiny handful that really were there for me. But the college people, I mean, even, like, the first football game, which I attempted to go to because I wanted to try and enjoy college, like, this guy who I literally only knew for four days, like, left his first football game after, like, seven minutes to make sure I got back okay and something like that. And you had all the tailgates. I had a designating drinker so that I could play all the games and have fun and stuff like that. I didn't have to ask. Like They just stepped up and did it. And I think there's a real beauty in that. And it certainly meant a lot to me. And so I think people need to be given the benefit of the doubt, too, to sort of like be good humans. I don't think there's enough of that. I think people started expecting the worst from each other. It's incredible because oftentimes we actually have students struggling with making that kind of connection on college campus. Oftentimes... Folks come with strong connections from high school, and my struggle actually in college to do the same. So it's interesting to hear from your perspective. And I really appreciate what you just shared, all of it. Yeah, so I did drop out because of basically I decided that I had issues with gaze stability, which means that both my eyes like weren't looking at the right spot to like for each other. So if I was like staring at the wall, trying to like look at one point, like it, there would be two of them or like I couldn't move my head. Like I was having trouble like looking at something on the wall. If you think about that, but then think about college is like reading and you have to also do the life part of it and taking care of yourself. I lived off campus. Then you have to do like, there's just all these things. And I was no wonder this is so hard. It shouldn't have to be this hard. And there's no harm in waiting. Like I was behind anyway, because I took time before coming to college. So I was like, oh, I can't be behind again. I felt like that was such a huge failure that I was even considering it because I thought like, oh, I'm fine now. I shouldn't take this loss. Like it felt like an, a loss. It was a decision I sort of grappled with. And it ended up being the best thing I ever did. Like that time allowed me to focus on my health. I got exponentially better. It allowed me to like get back into the CrossFit gym and do, sorry, I started rock climbing. Like I was physically a lot fitter. I made just like substantial progress. I was also happier. And I also got to do the fun things because oftentimes school took so much out of me that I wasn't doing a lot, like my social time were people in my house and I had a blast. And like I said, I wasn't necessarily lacking, but that semester opened my eyes because I lived here because I was already paying rent, but it just opened my eyes to how much more there was. And then my worked like 10 hours a week, maybe a little bit less, like in my lab because my PI was amazing and he was like, I want to support you. It doesn't matter if you're a student or whatever. So I had something to do, which was important. But I just think like if anyone's thinking that they need time for whatever reason, like mental health or like if something is challenging, like graduating a semester, like what are you rushing to? The nine to five workforce? Like, and you don't pay when you're not in school. Like, so it's not like a money thing. It's an interesting concept, Sarah, because we actually encounter this very, very often with students who would really benefit from maybe going to rehab for a semester or doing eating disorder recovery or in any kind of a leaf, right? I mean, it sounds like you returned in a much more optimal place to really capitalize on being in school, right? But I think you're speaking to some really important pressures, whether it's a time pressure, perceived norms that you should graduate within certain time frame, all the other layers. 
Yeah, I basically did a rehab semester, but it was local and not that type of rehab, but it was a rehab semester. It's pretty much where I spent all my time. My friends would go to class. I would go to rehab. We'd come back. We'd watch movies. But there's so much to it. And I don't know why people are so susceptible to like the rat race mentality. And I don't know who they're trying to outdo. And I do sometimes get... I wouldn't necessarily call it like FOMO, but I am very aware now of the fact that my high school friends and my childhood peers are now real people with jobs and because they're now a few years out of college and I'm not. So I do, in a sense, sometimes get a feeling of stuckness, especially now that my core group of Michigan friends have graduated and moved on. But I think that, again, it's like I'm able to take so much more advantage of this college experience and I've been able to grow and mature and do really awesome things. And so I think that is more important because if you're going to drop thousands of dollars to go to school, you want to really get the most out of it. So I think that's important. And then to me, going back to values, like you have nothing if you don't have your health. And so being able to, and that goes mental, physical, the works and and a brain injury crosses both over. And so it's not really worth it if you can solve multivariable calculus problems or differential equations, if you can't walk down the street anymore because you like fried your system, whatever the equivalent is, or if you're dependent on substances, but you know Russian literature. So maybe to bring this back home, I think that sometimes people really appreciate metaphors. And you mentioned rock climbing. And I know you've talked about this before as like sort of a mechanism for, I think, everything we're talking about. So can you talk about that for a minute? I can't take credit for a lot of this, but I have embraced it fully. So my doctor actually got me into rock climbing because it's really good to work on proprioception. It's very controlled. So I climbed indoors first only for a while. And only top roping, which is the kind where you're like strapped in and there's ropes and stuff. So you don't, it's controlled fall, like it's very safe. So yeah, working on proprioception, working on my right side, working on a lot of things was really good for me. And more so it was good for me because it's a form of practiced failure. To get good, you have to, he said like the greatest thing about rock climbing for you is that your hands are going to fatigue well before the limit that your body has right now. And so it was like a way of slowly building back. And so I expected every time I was going into the gym to fatigue and fall off the wall because not only were the climbing difficult and I was going into something that I was deliberately going to be bad at because at the time, like I didn't have great feeling in my right foot. Like I could, one of my superpowers was I could like step on a Lego. It would hurt, but like not in the way that if Joy steps on a Lego, she'd probably say a few expletives and yell at her kid. And I didn't have great body awareness either. Uh, And so like I was going to suck at it. And then being able to do it and see the progress. The other thing is that the climbing has grades. And so you're able to like see yourself steadily progress across the grades. The community, you always need someone to climb with. If you're top roping, you can't do it alone. And so you always have this buddy system, which is, I think, really beautiful. And then you fall off all the time and and you're literally like hauling yourself up a wall. So I think that it was just a really awesome metaphor for what I was doing. And I fell in love with the sport and I'm now markedly better. I love the measurable progress, but I also love the permission to fail or be bad at something and how freeing that actually is and how that actually stimulates growth. Yeah, and we don't have that model as well in the academic environment. There's only sort of measures of success. And so I guess I wonder if you can leave our listeners with 
advice around that? How do you translate maybe to the college environment that metaphor from the rock climbing? One thing to think about is from my reading that I read before this interview started, which is relatable. It has to do with like gameful learning and this idea that Barry Fishman is a researcher here at the University of Michigan, and he does gameful learning pedagogy stuff. And he talks about how in most course models, you start at 100%, and the minute you don't do 100%, you're less than. Like, it's always about losing. And so that's sort of like the world that we live in. It's that you're going, you're going, going, and people notice that failure a lot more. And I think that's, you know, sort of helps drive some of our fear of failure and stuff and sort of wanting approval and thinking like anything, the ability to practice our like to flex our resilience muscles a little bit is really useful. Because if you were to ask any successful entrepreneur, so I think about failing forward or failing up in terms of if you fail, you know, evaluate, do some analysis, think about what happened. And so like if you fail a test, maybe you studied and you didn't study correctly, maybe you didn't study. Maybe you shouldn't have had those six beers last night. Whatever it was, like think through that process. And then in terms of being able to practice failure, it doesn't have to be rock climbing. And it doesn't necessarily have to be something you're bad at. It just, sports are a great example because like you win and you lose. Weight training is a good example also because you go to failure as a way to build strength. That's the way that you improve. But I have been, attempting to learn the guitar over the last couple of years, mostly as a joke, but it's actually turned into something I enjoy. And like, I can't tell the difference between the white and the black keys on a piano. It's just a mess. And I also have no rhythm. And so I'm not very good at it, but I have fun with it. And you know, to let yourself do that and like sort of bask in your imperfection. There are a lot of ways that you can sort of practice failure. It takes us back to a little bit of the stretching and exploration and sort of collecting data. Like when you're trying to play guitar, I think that, I mean, it sounds like you've discovered so much about yourself and are actually enjoying it. The guitar thing was fun and product of my housing arrangement. I lived with people that were very musical and I just desperately wanted, like I've always admired people with musical talent as someone who lacked it. And everyone was musical, so like they'd have jam sessions. And so my roommate was like, I'll teach you. And so I was starting to learn. And especially during that semester off, I got guitar lessons from my roommate. I think that's the key. I really do. And I actually think we might have even found the title for this episode because you said basking in imperfection. And I think a lot of students struggle with exactly what you're saying, which is the tendency to when things get hard and when we're not able to do them in a way that we expect, it's easier to abandon it instead of what you're suggesting and what Alona's saying, which is to use it as data and to get curious about it. And how do you embrace it on some level and see where it takes you? So we really appreciate you being with us today, Sarah. Thank you so much. Any last words? In closing, I would guess like I'm glad that I'm the feature on Basking in Perfection because I think anyone that would encounter me is like definitely not perfect. But I think also in growing with the injury is just like knowing that things are not going to be perfect, especially with the injury. Not that I was perfect before, like anyone that would get a lot of laughs and just sort of rolling with it and being able to laugh at yourself, I think is really important. Perhaps the most important thing that I have. So yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review us on your favorite pod platform. Share with your friends if this is making you think about and participate in college differently. We want to hear from you. Connect with us on Instagram and let us know how it's going.
This podcast is not professional advice or replacement for therapy. If you need professional advice, you should find it with professionals in your area, such as your primary care physician or therapist.